Hi there, my name is Lyric Fesco and I'm the Director of Discipleship here at Christ Presbyterian Church. For those of you who didn't grow up in the church, there's this song that was taught in many a Sunday school class, and in fact it's still taught to a lot of children today in church. It's based on Jesus' own words and has the lyrics along the lines of, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Are you familiar with this one? Maybe you are. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and then the song tells us about a foolish man. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And then after a few times that each of those lines are repeated, it tells us the final result. The rains came down and the floods came up. And as a result, the foolish man's house that was built upon the sand, it was washed away. And the wise man who built his house upon the rock, well, his house stood firm. Now, Generally speaking, we, we tend to hear that song or read that passage from scripture on which it's based, and we think we've got a pretty good idea of what it all means. Build, build your life upon Jesus, right? And, and your life will generally stand firm. It'll hold up. But if you don't build your life upon Jesus, your life will go splat, as the song says, right? Got it. Understood. I think I understand the principle. So what's the next verse? I want you to bookmark that thought. Bookmark that song in your mind. Bookmark that passage of scripture for the moment. And as you bookmark that, let's get into this, the last installment of the Law Fulfilled Study. And we've come to a topic that's probably amongst the least popular in Christian circles. I say least popular because maybe it's a topic that we like the idea of, and we agree in principle that this is the kind of people we want to be. But in practice, well, in practice, when the rubber meets the road, it's, it's the one that we wish sometimes wasn't something that Jesus talked about. It's the principle of loving your enemy. Okay, let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard enough to love your neighbor. And my neighbor, well, that's someone I like to think I can tolerate. But my enemy, my enemy, let that sink in. Listen to the radical call of Christ. Love your enemy. What does that mean exactly? You see, in the book of Leviticus, Israel was instructed to love your neighbor as yourself. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they said, okay, 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 we've got to follow the law. We can't not follow the law. So let's see how we can make this law manageable. Because if we put too wide a scope on the word neighbor, well, that's going to make the law pretty hard to follow. So they took the word neighbor to mean my fellow Jew. Love your fellow Jew as yourself. There we go. I can manage that. I can manage that. Love the people who are a lot like me. Perfect. Okay, but guess what? They went even further with their understanding of this law. Not only did they limit the scope on who they were to love, only the Jew, but they took the liberty to say, well, if I only have to love my fellow Jew, that means I can hate anyone else. Following the law is easy, see? And it is easy to follow. It is easy to follow if we cobble it and shape it the way we want it to say and, and make it according to our own purposes. And, and it's easy to look at the religious leaders of the day and say, obviously, that's not what the law is saying. You guys just can't hate anybody, right? But what isn't as easy is identifying who our enemy is. Or, or what do you mean by love my enemy? Like how much, right? Those questions are the ones that we struggle with every bit as much as the Pharisees did. When we open up Matthew 5, right from the start, we're seeing that Jesus is speaking in a, in a canvas of paradoxes. The poor will inherit the kingdom. The hungry shall be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh. And it works both ways, too. Poor is really rich. Rich is poor. Those who are full now will be hungry. Those who laugh will weep. So by the time we get to Jesus telling us to love your enemies, we need to understand that he's trying to turn our thinking upside down. 
The scope of who it is that we're talking about is wider than you think. The scope of what we mean by love your enemy is wider than you think. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. With that phrase, Jesus puts a fine point on these questions. Who are we talking about? Those who persecute me? When we think about the word persecute, we tend to think of it in a modern American context. You know, I'm persecuted if I'm told I can't pray in public, or I'm persecuted if I'm told I can't share my faith in my place of work. But the word for persecute here literally means to chase. Chase with malevolence. So in terms of scope, Jesus isn't just talking about people that generally think negatively of you. He's talking about them and those who wish the worst kind of harm on you and everyone in between. That's the who that we're talking about. And then he tells us the what. Pray. Pray for those people. Offer up prayers for those people. And it's not, dear Lord, rain, hell, fire down upon them. See, I'm praying for them, right? No, the context tells us to pray for someone is to seek their good, to answer hate with love. Paradoxical, right? So how do we do this? How, how in the world do we pray for someone who hates us? How do we pray for someone like that? Or quite bluntly, how do I pray for someone that I hate? I think of my wife, I think of my kids. If you do something, anything at all to them, to harm them, if you speak a bad word about them, if you ostracize them, if you belittle them, what's my response? Honestly, honestly, what's my response? It's not, oh dear Lord, please love them the way you love me. That's generally not how I'd respond. That's not my initial impulse. My initial impulse is to want to cause the same kind of harm to them that they caused my loved one. It's my sin nature waging war against these words of Jesus. And just as an aside, yes, God is very much in favor of justice. There are plenty of civil laws in the Bible that shows us that God is pro-justice as it pertains to the governing of his people. But here, Jesus is getting down to the relational level, the one-on-one. And if someone causes harm to me, right, he's saying my response is to not return the favor, but respond with love. How in the world do I do that? As John Stott says, it's impossible to pray for people without loving them. And it's impossible to go on praying for them without discovering that our love for them grows and matures. So we can't wait until we feel some love for them in our heart before we start praying for our enemies. In other words, you do it before you feel it. But why? Why do we do that? Is that, is that even really a healthy thing to do? Jesus goes on to say, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's easy to love the lovable. Instead, I'm asking you to do something radical, something greater. And again, why is he asking us to do this? Why? Because Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Don't you see what his objective is here? Don't you see what God's will for your life is? Do you want to know what God's will for your life is? People always ask that. What's God's will for my life? I'll tell you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it reads just like this. For this is the will of God. Here we go. This is it. He's about to tell us your sanctification. Plainly stated, God's will for your life is to make you like his son, to make you holy like his son. That's what his will for your life is. That means slowly but surely over the course of your entire walk with Jesus, you're going to be shaped and molded and crafted and conformed into the likeness of Christ. And Christ died for his enemies. 
Christ died for his enemies for the purpose of saving them. What do you think he's going to ask us to do for our enemies? We walk in his footsteps. My life for yours. Yes, even for the sake of our enemies. Does that sound like a tall order? You just have to be like Jesus. That's all. That's all. In fact, that's basically how Jesus finishes up this section of his sermon. He says, and again, I'm paraphrasing here. Here's all you have to do. Just be perfect. Just be perfect. Just be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Oh, is that all? Is that all I have to do? That feels heavy. You know, uh, this might be a good time to talk about the title of this study we're doing. We've entitled it The Law Fulfilled. Do you understand why we've called it that? Has that come full circle for you yet? What does that mean? Do you know why Jesus was baptized? Think about this. John the Baptist was calling the people of God to repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, repent. God's kingdom is about to arrive and you're not ready. So people repent. And then down the hill comes Jesus and he says, okay, John, baptize me. John is calling the people to repent of their sins. And here, sinless Jesus is saying, yep, baptize me. And John says, no way. You're the spotless lamb of God. If anything, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, just do it, John. Just do it. And then he says this, this is Matthew 3, 15. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, John, I'm, I'm stepping into the Jordan River with you here because I'm standing here on behalf of God's people. And if the first prophet in 400 years is here telling the people of God, repent and be baptized, then I'm going to stand here in their place and be baptized. If this is what the law requires, then I'm going to do it on their behalf. In fact, I'm going to fulfill every pen stroke of the law, every last detail. I'm going to keep the law for them, for God's people. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what the law fulfilled means? It means every requirement of the law has been met. And do you see where we're left to turn when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Starting in Matthew 5, Jesus is giving us a recapitulation of the law. And in not so few words, he's saying the law is harder than you thought. Its scope is, is broader than you ever thought. It's not just this, but it's also this plus this. And you've not been doing it. You see, he doesn't let us off the hook. He doesn't show up to tell us, hey, hey, it's not as bad as you thought. He's telling us it's, it's much more than you thought. You're not even close. And just when you start to feel suffocated, just when you start to feel crushed by the weight of the law, at the conclusion of this Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 7, do you know what he says? Do you know what the exclamation point is that he puts on the entire doubling down on the law? The wise man built his house upon the rock. If you didn't know what you were looking for, this would seem like the most out of place parable in all the gospels. Jesus, did you just change the subject? Thank you for sharing this little nugget that we can share and make into a children's song to teach our children to generally build their lives around you. No, 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 no. Don't you see why he put that there? That was his exclamation point to this entire sermon. Build your house, build your life around the idea that I will keep the law on your behalf. I will uphold the law for you. I did it perfectly. I met every requirement of the law and let that serve as your foundation. If you try and uphold the law on your own with your own ability, it'll be like building a house on sinking sand. It won't hold up. I have built the foundation for you. And what you build on top of that foundation will not fail. You see that? So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, yes, we should feel the weight of the law. 
But we should also walk away knowing that the entirety of the law has been upheld on your behalf. You've been accepted. Your status is secure. You get credit for the righteousness of Christ. And that, my friends, with that knowledge, that should inform how we build the rest of the house. Knowing that our status is secure, the foundation is secure, you've been accepted. Well, that, that changes everything. And that allows us to live out this paradoxical way of life that Jesus calls us to. Because he did what was impossible for us, now we can go do the things that were once unthinkable, like love your enemy. Let that thought carry you this week, that someone has upheld the law in its entirety on your behalf. He has met every requirement of the law for you. That has secured your status before God the Father. Now go live a life that reflects that. Thanks, my friends. May God bless you.